This is the Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chad, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. The comments continue to pour in as we discuss Apple versus the FBI. A listener on one hand says, how would you feel if a family member was killed in a terrorist attack that could have been prevented had the authorities known who convicted terrorists had been contacting? If you're convicted of terrorism, you should lose all your rights. That includes the protection of information on your phone. Let's just be very clear here as we move forward. And I, and, I, and I tried to make it as clear as possible by reading the entire letter from Apple CEO Tim Cook, the entire open letter. This is not the FBI asking Apple to crack one phone. This is the FBI asking Apple to create software, a new operating system that does not currently exist, that would allow investigators backdoor access to any iPhone not just the San Bernardino shooters. We'll get to many more of your comments as this hour moves on, but right now I'm very, very much looking forward to connecting with the author of a new book titled The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time. Maria Konnikova, also the author of Mastermind, joining us over the phone this morning. Maria, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's interesting as as I started to get into your book, I noticed or it occurred to me anyway that the word con, specifically in the context of a con artist, could stand for the confidence artist. And you elaborate on that. Where did you come up with the idea for this book? Well, I actually came up uh, for the idea from a film, uh, David Mamet's House of Games. I was really just mesmerized by the main character, who is a woman in her 30s, a psychologist, very, very successful, basically the last person you would think would ever fall for a con. Um, And she ends up just having her entire life devastated by a con artist. Um, And at the end of it, I just thought, well, if it can happen to her, it can happen to anyone. And how is that even possible? You know, how does someone like that fall for a long con. And I realized when I started digging into this that no one had ever really explored that question. And there went the next three years of my life. (laughs) Well, I mean, in chapter one of your book, one of the sentences that jumps right off the page, you say people often ask you if you've ever been conned and you have to respond, I have no idea. Yes. um, And that's one thing that I definitely learned um, from from doing my research, from writing this book. Because before I thought, you know, it's pretty clear cut. You know, if you're conned, you're conned. But then I realized that that's actually not the case at all. A lot of cons go unreported. Um, actually, most by by most estimates, most cons go unreported. And some of it has to do with you know with shame. You don't you don't want your reputation ruined. But another huge part of it is that people do not realize that they've been conned. We are so incredibly good at self-deception, at conning ourselves, that we will often rationalize away even pretty blatant cons as just a matter of, you know, ill fortune, bad luck. Oh, you know, that investment didn't work out, but this was a really solid guy, and it was really a good idea. Mm. You know, we've, we spoke on this show a few months ago with a, a university student who, who had fallen victim to what he thought was a, a method of easy income, and he had been conned out of about a semester's worth of cash. 
cash, about five grand in his case. We've talked to people that have been conned by who they believe to be a, a romantic partner, someone that they had mm-hmm. spoken with or corresponded with on the internet. And then there, there are the high-profile cons, which you cite in your book, people like Bernie Madoff and, and Lance Armstrong. Do all of these con artists, from the local ones we'll call them, to the ones gaining all the international headlines, do they have something in common? Absolutely. Um, and while I will say that, you know, con artists do differ from each other and there's a lot of variety, and what I'm about to say certainly does not apply to all of them, um, most of the con artists that I was able to to speak with or to research um, share some or all of the so-called dark triad of traits. Um, the first of them is actually, while the most popular, the most rare when it comes to con artists, and that's psychopathy, um, this lack of empathy. Um, it's an inability to experience emotions the same way that you or I do. So, you know, when someone is hurting, you don't actually care. You have a very cold and rational out, uh, outlook on that, and that's incredibly useful because then you don't really care that you are just ruining people's lives, because to you, that doesn't matter. You feel no guilt. You feel no remorse. And so that really enables, I think, a lot of con artists to operate because of that cold rationality. Mm. The second two are much more frequent um, in con artists, and those are narcissism and Machiavellianism. So narcissism, I think we're all familiar with as kind of this overblown ego, but there's another side of that, and that's a sense of entitlement. So I am going to take something from you because it's rightly mine. I'm just writing the world. It belongs to me. So I talk about some con artists who, you know, they steal PhDs. They steal other people's credentials. And the way they think about it is, well, I'm smarter than all PhDs. Why in the world should I not have that title? Because I'm better than you. I deserve it more than you. I don't want to work for it. I'm just going to take it. So it's another very powerful rationalization tool. Um, And the final part, Machiavellianism, comes from Machiavelli's The Prince. And that's kind of those soft skills. And I think basically all con artists have to have this. It's being able to manipulate someone without their realizing that they're being manipulated. So you get them to do your bidding, but they think it's coming from them. None of us like feeling manipulated. But when we think that we've come up with a brilliant new idea, well, then we're really excited about it. And con artists really excel at making people think that it's really coming from them, that they're not being pushed in any direction. Hmm. You One of the more interesting, and to go back to the second point you just made about this sense mm-hmm. of entitlement, one of the more fascinating mm-hmm. case studies you cite are the, the brothers or the, the people that were duped, the art buyers that were duped, that realized what had happened and then decided they would then dupe someone else to get out of a sticky situation. Can someone become a con? <laughs> That, I, I love that story. Um, and yes, absolutely. Um, there is a thin line, basically, um, that can be flipped at any at any given point between a mark or a victim and a con artist or the perpetrator. And I think that not everyone can become a con artist. The way that I describe it is that it's predisposition meeting opportunity. So those two brothers, they bought a fake Goya painting. Um, they realized it was fake. We're allowed to keep it. Okay, fine. You know, it's still a lovely painting. A lot of people would have just left it at that. They clearly had some of the predisposition. So I'm guessing that they had some of that dark triad or other elements that in that particular situation, they said, hey, 
wait a minute, maybe we can we can do something with this. And they turned to con artistry. So I think both things have to happen. I can see a reality where those brothers, you know, live happily ever after and never became con artists because they never were in a situation that brought that out. Unfortunately, it's very, very difficult to go the other way. So once you're down that slope and once you've gotten away with it, so they didn't get away with it. So for them, I think it's a one-off. But if you get away with it, that is a very intoxicating feeling, and I think that keeps con artists just coming back for more and more and more, even if they can go straight, they don't. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if most people are like me, but my inclination when I hear of, I mean, you know, in particular, the Bernie Madoff story that jumped out, and we had mm-hmm. uh, Kelly Keene, a finance expert, on the other day, talking about her take on that, about how, how Madoff would operate in luring in the big fish, and it was all about his throwing parties, acting like he didn't need their business, and then calling calling back a week later saying maybe he's got room for people. He essentially baited the hook for people and then sat mm-hmm. there and waited. You write that everyone will fall victim to a confidence artist at some point, and the question is why. So what's the answer? <laughs> I think there, there are a few um, aspects of the answer. The most fundamental um, part is that we all have this very deep-rooted need for belief. You know, we need a world that makes sense. We like certainty. We hate uncertainty. We don't like shades of gray. We like black and white. We like explanations. We like stories, narratives that make sense of the world. Um, And so that's why you have organized religion that spontaneously arises in every single society throughout history. That's the same reason that con artists can flourish, because they provide us with meaning. They tell stories. They actually make sense of things that don't make sense. So I think that's a huge part of it. But the other, the other part of it is that we're actually hardwired to trust. That evolutionarily has been the more advantageous um, aspect for us. And so we don't spot deception, and we actually believe people more likely than not. Um, rather than verifying, we kind of we take things at face value. And if you think about it, I was actually quite surprised by this initially. I thought, wait a minute, you know, why why would being trusting people be more adaptive? But if you think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense because for society to evolve, we do need to trust each other. We need to forge links. We need to form relationships. We need people to protect us. We need people to take care of us. Um, And that's kind of the natural starting point of why trust is good. And there's a lot of research that shows this. You see that trust on an individual level is correlated with higher intelligence, with more successful life outcomes, with better health, better happiness. And on a social level, you see that countries with higher levels of generalized trust end up doing much better economically. They end up having better social institutions. So this is really a good thing. So we we're, we become vulnerable because, for the most part, we're incredibly trusting and we're very, very bad at spotting deception. Yeah, yet at the same time, nobody wants to be the, the paranoid person. Nobody wants to be suspicious of everybody, but maybe we should be a little less trusting. <laughs> well, um, I, I couldn't agree more with you in the sense that um, nobody wants to be that suspicious person because that was me after I finished researching the book. I bet. Um, I just wanted, <laughs> I wanted to, you know, lock myself in a room and throw away the key because I thought, oh my God, the world is terrible. People are terrible. Everything's terrible. You know, how am I going to ever trust anyone? And then it took me a while, but I actually surmounted that. I, I thought to myself, well, you know, if you deny yourself that, then you're denying a very important part of your humanity. You're denying hope. You're denying new relationships, kind of new friendships. You're really 
getting rid of the depth of what it means to be human. And so where I come out is, I think that the old journalistic dictum is actually quite applicable here, which is trust but verify. So yeah, I, I will trust people. And I will, you know, if that opens me up to being conned, fine. And I'll also know that I won't always be able to spot deception. But I'm also more likely to just verify where before I would have just implicitly said, okay, that's that sounds reasonable. Now I might turn to my new best friend, Google, and kind of do a little research and see what might come up. Yeah, no kidding. Everybody's Googling their first dates these days. <laughs> uh, our guest is Maria Konnikova. The book is The Confidence Game. Maria, on our text line here, a listener asks, well, okay, where's the line between con artistry and sales? And it reminds me of your writing <laughs> on information priming. I think that has a correlation here, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there is a very thin line, not just sales. I mean, advertising, marketing, business, politics, law, even journalism. There are a lot of professions that use the same tools as con artists. And sometimes there are members of those professions who actually are con artists. In my mind, the dividing line is all about intention. So was your intention malicious or was it benign? Were you intending to deceive, to get people to manipulate them for your own ends? Or do you actually kind of you know, are you are you doing this pretty legitimately? Do you believe in what you're doing? And sure, you're in sales, you're exaggerating a bit, but basically you're making people's lives better. You're selling them a good product. Um, and if that intention is positive, it's not a con artist, even if you use a lot of the same tools. If it's not, if it is malicious, then you are a con artist. And that's why you find both types of people in all walks of life, um, in, in all of those professions that, that we, you and I have mentioned. And I think that you know, that's a very important distinction to keep in mind. Because if you think about, you know, health products, for instance, some people there are definitely con artists. They're your traditional snake oil salesman, who's one of the quintessential con artists, when they know that they're selling you something bogus, but they're doing it anyway to actually make money. Then there are people who are in advertising for health products that really think that this is a good health product. Those people aren't. I think that's a very good way of thinking about the distinction. Hmm. A listener out of Redger this morning says, Cycle of Lies by Juliet Messers, a great read on Lance Armstrong. Says, I like watching, going back and watching YouTube videos of interviews with Armstrong during the glory years, knowing at that time how intense his doping really was. This listener says, I find him to be fascinating. I do not hate him for what he did. What do you make of the Lance Armstrong saga? Well, I think that she makes an exceptionally important point. She does not hate him for what he did. And that is true of con artists. They are really charismatic. We really relate to them. They are not, you don't look at them and say terrible, terrible person for the most part. You look at them and you fall under their charm. You fall under their influence. Um, And you don't realize, I mean, what Lance Armstrong did was, I mean, quintessential con artistry. Can you imagine if you're a legitimate competitor in that field to realize that you've been being beaten all this time by a guy who's been doping? Well, he says, you know, in his mind, I think, obviously I have no idea what he's thinking, but this is the way I envision it, that Armstrong is saying something along the lines of, well, hey, I beat cancer, I deserve to win, so even if I have to get, you know, a little extra edge, fine, so be it, because I deserve it more than any of these people. That's that sense of entitlement we were talking about. And if you think about it, just flip it around, though. Think of all of those other people. Well, don't they deserve to win, too? Why is he, why is he any more deserving? Um, and why should he be allowed to cheat 
just because he's kind of this icon of hope. And it's also false hope. I think a lot of people, a lot of cancer survivors actually would feel differently and say, actually, I feel incredibly betrayed by him because he he sells this false image that then makes us feel like, you know, very, very bad about ourselves. We feel like we should be able to do that, but we can't because we didn't cheat. Yeah, a friend of mine tells me that he, when he when the news broke, when it was confirmed, and many people who'd never wanted to believe the allegations were essentially forced to, he said he's never felt more stupid having worn his yellow Livestrong bracelet, which is actually mm-hmm. really, to state the obvious, quite unfortunate. Yeah, that's 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 absolutely right. And so there are two sides to this, but it's very easy to forget that these are bad people and that they ruin lives and that they really. They're, I mean, these are nasty individuals. I forgot that, too. I mean, it's very easy to glamorize them, and I think I'm partly responsible for doing that as well, although I tried not to, um, just because, you know, they, they do have that mystique and allure about them. And a lot of times they don't actually, in, in the Armstrong case, he did cross a criminal line, but a lot of times they don't. A lot of times they just persuade you to do something. They haven't technically done anything illegal, and yet they've probably... You know, they've left one more victim in their wake. Hmm. Uh, Maria, I'm going to ask you to hang tight because we've got a, a break we've got to fit in here. But when we come back, a listener by the name of Sean wants your take on Volkswagen's diesel gate, of course, manipulating the emissions standards. And a couple more comments on Lance Armstrong. It's a case that gets a lot of people talking. More with Maria Konnikova, author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time after this. Maria Konnikova, our guest, author of The Confidence Game. Maria, thanks for holding the line. A listener by the name of Michael says, I think your guest might be wrong with Lance Armstrong. It's not so much entitlement as everyone else is doing it, so why not me? Another says Armstrong raised half a billion dollars for cancer while beating other doped cyclists. It's worth it as far as I'm concerned. What's your take on that? Well, I think that we have a wonderful capacity for rationalization, to be perfectly honest. Um, And that's one of the things that makes us both victims and so forgiving of so many con artists. And, you know, I think what's going on here is actually something we see all the time and why so many people never come forward, by the way, about being victims, because we victim blame. We say, well, you know, he... He actually didn't do anything wrong, and the people who were screwed because of that, that's their problem because he deserved it more. And it's a, that's the exact same sort of rationalization process that the con artists use themselves. And by the way, there, it, it, it isn't a case of everyone else is doing it. That's what he would have you believe. I'm sure that we can find a lot of cyclists who would never in their right mind dope, hmm. um, who know that other people are doing it, but they've chosen the more ethically sound way. Um, the other point is actually a very interesting one, that, well, he raised money for cancer. First, I actually don't know a lot about his charity, so I don't know what the overhead was like. Um, a lot of charities raise a lot less money than you think because they, you know, the overhead is high and the money doesn't actually go towards what you think it goes towards. I know nothing of Livestrong, so I cannot comment on that. Okay. That is a very common dilemma um, because there was another con artist, uh, Somali Mom, who... She uh, basically made up a victim uh, a victim story of herself that she was a victim of sex trafficking, and she coached other women to kind of give these very tear jerking stories. And a lot of these women were victims, but not of the stories that they kind of put forward. And she raised a lot of money for women who'd been sex trafficked, and yet, you know, it was all a big con. So what do we do with that? 
Yeah. Do we, do we say, well, it's fine, or do we say, well, it's a big con, and she actually made real victims of sex trafficking look terrible? No kidding. We'll put that out to our listeners, get them to respond. I want to ask you about Volkswagen, but I know you've got another interview right now, so we'll say we appreciate your time. It's an excellent book, The Confidence Game. Maria Konnikova, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. You bet. I'd recommend you check this book out. Very interesting stuff. You know, you don't have to be gullible to be conned. That's the assertion made here, and it's a really interesting read. We've left the next half hour open specifically for debate on the Apple versus the FBI story. That's where we'll go after these headlines. 10.35, our thanks to Maria Konnikova joining us on the phone from New York City, the author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time. A listener here uh, who chimes in on Twitter, this is Peter, says, uh, did your guest just directly compare organized religion with con artists? <laughs> yeah, Peter, that, that caught my attention too. I was like, ooh, but... And if you, I mean, she talk, she writes about what what she calls information priming, where you'll hear people, and when she says con artists, she's referring to confidence artists. She says, you know, the phrase is, "Picture this, or imagine that, or imagine the benefits of this." Now, I, I realize this is getting into some sensitive territory. Many people believe in the afterlife and you've been led to believe that streets paved with gold and heaven will look like this and no more suffering and and conversely you've been led to believe you know i mean the gnashing of teeth and hell and the eternal fire and 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 people are entitled to believe whatever they want and that's not what we're going to debate here on the show but your preacher or your spiritual counselor or your spiritual guide or your rabbi or your imam or whatever paints a picture don't they which you either do or do not believe to be true. And again, that's your right. Not here to debate religion, whether or not there is an afterlife. Because there's actually no way to prove it. Nobody actually knows. But that's what she writes as information priming. And it's the same sort of approach, maybe in a more extreme fashion, that those that are radicalizing terrorists are using. I mean, why do you think young men and women... I mean, why do you think parents strapping bombs to young children in war zones, why are they doing what they're doing? They're doing it out of a great sense of conviction that they're either earning themselves a trip to the afterlife, you're earning yourself, you know, millennia upon millennia with 144 virgins or whatever the case may be, right? You've been conned, these terrorists have, by extremists by ideologues, by those that have painted a picture through information priming. Imagine an eternity that looks like this. Imagine the benefit of taking such an action. Interesting area for debate. Mac says raising money for cancer research has become the new shell game. It's a disease that touches everyone and predators smell the blood in the water. He says take a look at any nonprofit raising money for cancer research. Well, and this is dangerous ground, Mac, because you can't put them all in the same boat. But he says, you know, on average, just about 25% makes it to any actual cancer research center. The rest lost in a maze of administration fees and other thefts of confidence. 
Max says, as an example, the NFL's well-publicized pink shoe campaign, and I'll read Max's text, I have not fact-checked this, but he says only 3.2% of profits actually went toward cancer research. It's a sad state of affairs, but it's indicative of our world today where it's more important to say you're helping than to actually be helping. That from Mac. Mac, you're onto something. I mean, I encourage people, when, when I have my donor dollars going to something, I like to do the legwork. I like to do the research. I've supported the Movember movement in past. They open up their books. They, they say, here, take a look. Here's what our administration fees are. Here's what's going to what. And I think that's important for any agency, any group to do. Many of you are chiming in on con artistry and religion. I think... I'm going to make the executive decision here because we promised open conversation on Apple versus the FBI that we're going to stick to that. And I hope you're with me on that. If you're not up to speed on this, Apple CEO Tim Cook released an open letter on Tuesday, a message to our customers that cites the United States government via the FBI, a demand that Apple take an unprecedented step which CEO Cook says threatens the security of our customers. They're opposing an order to create software that would allow the FBI a backdoor entry to a specific iPhone, the iPhone belonging to one of the San Bernardino shooters. But Apple CEO says once this software is created, in theory, it could be applied to any phone, and we're not doing that to our customers. So we've been asking you what you make of Apple's decision to stand up to the FBI and say no. Ida says, I commend Apple for taking time out of their busy, productive days to help law enforcement in cases they deem important enough to break into any individual's phone. I had no idea that the FBI wanted the encryption key to anyone and everyone's phone. Says, I value my safety tremendously. And since I have nothing to hide, I had no issue with any law enforcement agency crossing the privacy line if it meant that our society... Safety is jeopardized. However, I have a huge problem with any law enforcement agency owning an encryption key for all of our phones because what may be important at the onset, you know, catching pedophiles, murderers, rapists, could quickly morph into more ambiguous issues like tax evasion or speeding tickets or things that don't necessarily mean any physical danger to society but instead provides the government with a more convenient method to top up their coffers. An interesting point. Graham says the problem with back doors is trust and the fact that we don't trust those we elect to have our best interest at hand. He says governments, as Edward Snowden demonstrated, betrayed that trust and the rights and freedoms that make Canada the best place in the world to live. We are not China, where all internet traffic is monitored and controlled. Not to mention the moment the back doors are created. Criminals will just switch back to the, the black phone if they haven't already. He says, I'm not a criminal. And the moment that Apple complies, I'm buying a black phone. I don't even know what that is. I'm sure some of you will let me know. Graham says, frankly, it would kill sales of the iPhone globally as more secure options would pop up to meet the demand. Graham, you just touched on something. It would kill sales of the iPhone globally. Many of you, I'd say more than 10 of you, have referenced Research in Motion. You know, the the manufacturer of BlackBerry? I'm scrolling down the text line because so many of you have been in touch with us, but I'm trying to find an example here where many of you have said BlackBerry did exactly that. Research in Motion did grant access in some countries, and it killed their business model. I'll see if I can find one. 
Austin, on the other hand, says this is fear-mongering coming from the CEO of a company who fancies themselves above everybody and everything. Apple has placed itself on a giant pedestal with our help. And they're using this as means to cement and ingrain in its users how important they are. Security on the scale of terrorism trumps Apple's narcissism. That from Austin. Who's fear-mongering, though? Is it Apple? Or is it, it, is it the FBI? Devin says, to argue against those who say, if you have nothing to hide, don't worry about it. Devin says, what about the RCMP seizing guns in High River during the flooding? Says at some point, people are always willing to push the boundaries. Christian says, I agree with Apple keeping its customers' security, but not if the person is a criminal or a terrorist. He says, automatically, Apple should unlock that phone, no questions asked. He says, I'm surprised the FBI and the U.S. Army isn't going after Apple and accusing them of being terrorists. If you're not with them, you're against them. That's kind of the classic conservative logic. If you're not with us, you're against us. If you protect your internet security, you're with the child pornographers. Well, no. And Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, has been very forthright and very upfront, saying, quote, when the FBI has requested data in our possession, we've provided it. We've complied with valid subpoenas and search warrants, including the San Bernardino case. We have even made Apple engineers available to advise the FBI, and we've offered our best ideas on a number of investigative options at their disposal. Another listener says, who's to say the CIA doesn't already have access to this phone, but they just can't show their cards? Good point as well. Daryl's been holding the line. We'll get to him first after this quick break. Text 630-630 and join the conversation. The Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chat, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. We're talking Apple versus the FBI. Trevor says, I think the FBI may be looking for a possible future scapegoat, as I cannot bring myself to believe with their resources, they do not have the ability to acquire this data on their own. Meantime, Sarah B. says Apple needs to open the door. Ethics trump an individual's rights when he or she has done such a terrible act. DC in the Park says I absolutely agree with Apple on this one. And their use of the term master key for every lock is the perfect analogy. Another listener here, this is Rob, says this Apple versus FBI situation seems painfully simple to resolve. Why can't Apple just tell the FBI, look, we're not going to give you the software to do it yourselves, but if you want to bring the phone to us, we'll unlock it for you with a warrant or whatever the case may be. Of course, there are implications here, though, if Apple does this. Sam I am says, I totally agree with Apple's stance to protect our privacy. I would not give the FBI anything. If they wanted the phone jacket, then the FBI should turn the phone over to Apple's secure lab without FBI presence and see if that data can be unloaded. Another listener says, the problem with security trumping freedom is that it becomes a slippery slope. At what point does this become a slippery slope? I'd say we're already there. Ipkiss says, oh, rather, this is Stan from Westlock, says a phone's back door is a bad idea and Apple is correct. They've created a product with a great security system and the FBI wants them to write software to break into it and just hand it over. What would Apple's product be worth then? A lot less than it was. 
An interesting quote here, and I was wondering if anyone would pass this along. Jay, citing Ben Franklin's assertion that those who would trade their rights and freedoms for security deserve neither. Let's see what Daryl has to say about this. Good morning, Daryl. Hi, how are you today? Doing well. What's your take? Oh, it's, just, it's such a such a huge issue. Um, you know, first of all, uh, there, when you look at demographics, it's fine to say, you know, I have nothing to hide, uh, therefore, you know, go ahead. But you know what? If you're the black 18-year-old person walking in downtown Toronto getting carded five times a week because you fit a demographic, uh, it becomes a very different situation. Um, you know, this is no different. This is not just about phones or privacy or anything. It's, it's about power. And and you cannot give anybody, I don't care whether it's a government, whether it's an agency, whether it's whatever, uh, power uh, over other people. The reality is is is... If they want to do that, then let's open up uh, Obama's uh, phone and see what he's talking about on the back end, what the FBI, what the CIA. Power is power, and, and you have to have an equal footing. And you cannot give anybody, no matter how it's presented or whether initially it looks like a benevolent uh, um, uh, idea, you cannot give power away. You don't, you don't get it back, and it gets abused. It's been shown time and time again, regardless of what society, what religion, what background, what civilization, that's what happens. And this is huge. Hmm. I agree with you, Daryl. Thanks for the call. Uh, Richard calling in from Calling Lake. How you doing, Richard? Oh, pretty good, sir. Thanks for taking my it's call. It's been a while since I've heard your voice. Yeah, I was on holidays for a couple of weeks. Went out to Hawaii. Oh, good on you. Where'd you go? Uh, Honolulu, uh, Oahu area. Yeah. Oh, I've never, I've only, I've been to Maui a couple of times. Should I jump to a different island? Uh, you could try it out. It's uh a lot's happening there. Yeah. Hey, what's your take on this Apple versus the FBI story? Well, I, anytime big organizations like the FBI, NSA, CIA, and all that, and then the world's most uh, profitable uh, corporation, I think this is all staged. I think the FBI can go in there anytime they want with the uh, you know technicians they have on staff. Like apparently, if they catch hackers like you know super hackers, if you want to call them that, they either charge them or put them on their payroll. I think this is all staged just to make they can make each other look good, but they can go in there anytime they want and take what they want through the back door. I think this is just uh, staged to appease the public like that our rights are safe. Hmm. You know, I, that's kind of maybe it's the conspiracy side of me, but... Uh, no, they, you know what, Richard? After what Edward Snowden exposed and all the information that's come out in the last two to three years, I don't. I, I think things that would have been deemed conspiracies before are now seen as either realities or legitimate concerns. Yeah, they, they have access to unlimited funding that we, you know, that we even hear of. But uh, they have, again, experts, technicians that can probably hack their way into anything. And uh, right now... You know, apart from conventional war, there's cyber, you know, intelligence, counterintelligence happening between huge countries. So I'm sure they can get in there anytime they want. This is just staged a PR to give us the sense that, you know, it's all good. And it's, they can take what they want when they want. All right, Richard, I got to fit in a break, but it's nice to hear from you. Likewise. Thank Thanks you. very much. Dean says, if you think Apple can't already break into their own software, you're fooling yourself. Bruce says, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. We'll get to more text messages after this. Feel- nice work, Brandon Graziano. Very well done. We're talking about Apple versus the FBI. CEO Tim Cook says, 
an unprecedented request from the U.S. government to create a backdoor to access a phone belonging to one of the San Bernardino shooters will be denied. Say it's a precedent we cannot allow once the FBI has access to crack our encrypted iPhones. Well, then sky's the limit. Or maybe we should head down instead. David out of Stetler says, what an interesting discussion to have after the one on cons, the conversation with Maria Konnikova. David says there's a parallel here. I mean, who's doing the conning? Is it Apple or the FBI or both? Cher says, so after we've talked about this, I've changed my mind on how I feel. I think the FBI should give Apple the phone for them to retrieve information and then pass it back to the FBI. She says, to just hand over the skeleton key is wrong. Now, keep in mind, in Tim Cook's letter, which we read earlier in the show, he says, we have kept people's personal information, this is Apple, out of our hands. He says, what's on your phone is none of our business. So it's not like Apple's holding information. Oh, yeah, we know who this terrorist spoke to right before he and his partner shot up all of their friends. No, they don't know. And they've complied with valid subpoenas. And, 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 and don't overlook that word for a second. Valid. When Apple CEO writes, we have complied with valid subpoenas, they're stating that within the letter to the letter of the law, they have done everything that they possibly can. Page says, I've been trying to inject a comparison as apples to oranges, but I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> thank you for the show. Well, thank you, Page, for that very much. Another listener, this is Austin, again, says it's fear-mongering. Jod says if Apple creates a backdoor for this one case, it could be destroyed afterward. It doesn't automatically mean everyone's phones are now accessible. The next phone update by Apple could completely block the FBI hack, making it useless going forward. Yeah, I mean, like... Maybe we should all just trust the FBI. We'll pick this up again later in this next hour, but after this 11 o'clock news headline, we're going to talk horse racing in Alberta from a few different angles. We'll be right back.